Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Remix, Episode X, The Trap House. Drug addiction, public policy, racism is more than just one house in your hood. And just for a simple uh, shout out to uh, my man Two Chains, drug addiction is more than just two chains holding you down. Ooh, I see what you did there. Yeah, you like that? I like that. Once again, guys, we like to ask you to sit back and relax. Uh, remember the ground rules. Basically, that respect is the utmost importance. We don't need to agree on that, but we do need to be respectful to one another. We don't have all the answers. No one does. This is an ongoing discussion. And hopefully, we will learn as much from you as you will from us. For quick legalese, the views and opinions expressed in our podcast are our own and not necessarily those of Emory University, Emory Healthcare, or the University of Pennsylvania. The content of the show is for the purpose of public education and entertainment and is in no form a substitution for individual health advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Yeah, all right, now let's get it going, guys. Let's, get it going. let's do it. All right. So first and foremost, we're going to come to the table and just talk about trapping. That is something that is kind of a universal term to some and just a foreign language to others. Any of you guys will speak on what is the trap? And then what is a trap house? I mean, are we talking literally? Yeah. Figuratively? Yeah, both. Connotation and denotation. I mean, trapping in general is hustling. It's a form of selling drugs, ultimately narcotics. I mean, the trap house is basically where the stash house is. That's where everything is kept, the drugs, the guns, and that's where all the, the high-intense video games happen. All right, then. Uh, that was K Ford dropping a little knowledge on us on the trapping. If you are already astute, you can kind of figure out the similarities. We are going to dive deep into two sides of the game. We're going to dive into what people traditionally know as the narcotics and drug game, but yet it has made national attention based on quote unquote the opiate crisis. We could have very much named this episode the Carter from you know the class in New Jack City. I would just say documentary. It wasn't. It was actually a fictional piece called uh, New Jack City, as I mentioned before, and it kind of highlighted the uh, drug industry from the street pharmaceutical aspect. And if that is the case, I would be uh, Nino Brown. Jawad would end up being, for lack of a better word, the pretty boy, Kareem Akbar. <laughs> you're, you're pretty sizable, man. Look at the muscles. I'm Definitely the muscle. And last but not least, we've got Chitty, who's got to be drop the ball, rock the ball, baby. Keisha from uh, New Jack City. That would make us all cash, money, <laughs> brother, CMB. And just, you know, before we get into it, let's just kind of uh, sit inside of this. Okay. A little you soulful. Had to. Start off soulful. Soulful. This song <laughs> from the uh, movie New Jack City. And that's what we're doing here. We're going to discuss the drug industry. And I'm going to sit back. We're going to see the parallels. We're going to see the similarities between life and fiction, between the wire and the you know, real life streets, between what we do, how sometimes uh, the pushers actually go to medical school. Huh. I just want to know how K Ford had so much information about trapping. That's what I was interested in. How you know so much? That's an uh, interesting question. I plead the fifth. 
Legend in two games. <laughs> All right, guys. So let's, so let's talk about it. So let's speak on uh, the whole issue about uh, we know about drug addiction. We know about substance abuse. People have a tendency to think it's all uh, cocaine, meth, and heroin and the likes. But uh, recent news headlines showed us this is not isolated to uh, urban areas or rural places where uh, people are in some type of hopeless plight to, for a better life and self-medicating. This is something that uh, we are and are culpable in. Let's start with the first phase. MDs is pushers. Pushing their boot. Pumping on what block? It depends, right? Speak on it. I wouldn't say I am a pusher, but I have pusher tendencies. <laughs> yep. I mean, when I was kind of going over this in my mind, it, it made me a little bit sad because I can see how we are a part of the problem. There are a lot of times where I'm tired and someone comes in and I know they just want drugs. I know they just want narcotics. And I could easily fight the good fight and be like, no, I'm not doing it. But sometimes you're just tired. You're just tired and you're just like, all right, let me just give you this one thing so you can get out of my ER. Are we right for doing that? Are we wrong for doing that? We're human at the end of the day, right? I mean, it's, it's happened to the best of us. It's the same thing when it comes to even just antibiotics, right? I mean, for us, either, either we're too tired, right? And we don't want to put up the fight. It happens to me, right? I, I always joke around, Jawad in Arabic means generous, right? So I have my generous <laughs> tendencies. And like, hey, I don't want to put up a fight today, I'm too tired. But sometimes you do have that energy. But we do the same thing with antibiotics, right? Hey, we just give medications, we'll shut up and we'll leave. Right? Yeah. And we don't do what's right. And there's a discussion I've always talked to John, multiple people about this too, is, is over-treatment, right? And I think what this leads to, we just like to keep treating things that don't need to be treated. It's whether we're tired, we're just want to put up a fight, or just like, hey, this patient's annoying. Let's just shut up and just give him something and just have him and give them out. Are you guys giving narcotics freely? So, I mean, I'll be honest, in Chitty, you and I, we did residency together. You know, had certain attendants who are very strong fighters. And I kind of feel like I take it from them. And I don't know if I should go too public with this, but- Yeah, yeah, uh, I think just, uh, we will remove all uh, identifiers for the sake yeah. of uh, not incriminating anyone. But I think there's enough guilt to spread around yeah. equally. We've all been complicit in handing out stuff that we knew yeah. probably wasn't in the best interest. Yeah. Kind of turning a blind eye sometimes when we knew yeah. that, um, Probably there was a, a harder fought, longer solution than just writing the script for the medication you know that person doesn't need. And, and I think the hard part is too, right? When it comes to somebody being septic who has really bad infections, we can see some things objectively based on blood work. We can see things on vitals. When it comes to pain, it's hard. We can't tell if someone's truly in pain. Right. And I think that's where it comes to the issue. Like if you give the person benefit of the doubt, and I do that sometimes, hey, you know, I'll just give the benefit of the doubt, give them one dose here. And then that's it. But people will currently come back. But I think it just because when we have no objective data and who truly deserves pain medications or not. We got to take a step back and realize that most of us went into this ultimately to help people and to make people feel better. The number one reason for people coming to the hospital, to the ER, to see their doctor is because they're in pain, right? We say practice because truly we live and learn in medicine and it goes from generation to generation, decade to decade. And when people come in with pain, we want to give them something to make them feel better. And so we've invented these medications that are really good at making people feel better. And we just didn't, we weren't very good at predicting some of the consequences that came with that. Now, when it comes to, we have to share the blame, but when it comes to kind of the 
who gets the market share of this blame. Of course, you're going to have to throw in for the people, the pharmaceutical companies. The plug. The plug. Pablo, you know, that's who <laughs> that's who are sending us these drugs because there's levels to the actual medications. You have the the five milligram oxycodone and then we have the long acting extended release 30 milligram oxycontin. Those medications, which are the medications that are being pushed and pushed and pushed, making so much money. Those are the medicines that kind of go overboard that we don't need to have those medicines. We've seen the pendulum swing, right? And it started with having that fifth vital sign pain scale. And so before people came in, we would give them a lot of pain medicine because we wanted them to feel better. And then all of a sudden now we have the opioid crisis and now we've kind of swung to the other opposite of the spectrum to where now we're kind of skeptical of everybody. We're thinking to ourselves, is this person just seeking drugs? And this person who's truly having pain, we're reluctant to give them medicine that might help them. So I think we have to try to find a, a middle ground. And I think you, you hit on some really important things. One of the things that I thought was pretty funny is uh, these drugs uh, cause euphoria. It's an unintended consequence. Many times, and get my pharmacology right, guys, mu receptors, I believe, are responsible for the euphoria. Many times people hardwire in the neural networks and actually misinterpret euphoria for analgesia. They're not the same. And they're actually coming in for the euphoria or the euphoric effects of these drugs, not necessarily the pain relief. If you look at uh, any uh, functional MRIs, this is just some of the science behind it, you will find out there where people sense pain and where people feel good about being high or some other type of endorphin release, they're different parts of the brain. The parts that light up when you are euphoric are the same ones that are often associated with mania, depression, some of the emotional responses that the brain has. The ones that basically light up for acute pain are totally different. And while there is overlap in those things, we have to be really honest saying that sometimes we're treating not pain that is a physical, but we're treating emotional, we're treating psychological pain. And that lends itself to this unintended consequence or this secondary effect that people are coming in for, for lack of a better word, a high. Right. Yeah. And I think that if you look over the last 15, 20 years, and granted, like we talk, I put some of that blame on pharmaceutical companies, but absolutely doctors that played a role in the opioid crisis. But again, I do think most of us have done it unintentionally with trying to make people feel better. But at the same time, we could have done it better because we know the side effects and the addictive potential of these medications. And so it was up to us to make sure that patients understood that, hey, there comes a risk of addiction with these medications and the properly teach people how to take this medicine, when to scale back, how to mix in the ibuprofen, the Tylenol with it, and to make sure everybody knows that, hey, if you're not having 10 out of 10 pain, you should not be taking this medicine because ultimately all we were doing was just kind of handing them the medicine and say, here we go. And then people were becoming addicted to it. Patients also, you know, I'm not sure about other cultures, but I'll, I'll just go ahead and talk about America. Americans have some responsibility too. And what I'll say from that standpoint is that we have come to a point where we feel like we should never have pain. In that part, we have to adjust our thinking. So sure, if you get into a car accident, you come in with a broken bone, yeah, you're having pain. You got breast cancer, the breast cancer is spread to your back or your spine, you have pain. If you're 70 years old, you're 60 years old and you got a little bit of knee pain because you've been walking. Let me tell you something, America, that is normal. We can't run to the doctor every time that you got a little bit of arthritis and you get mad when I tell you to 
take some Motrin and you want tramadol, you want oxycodone, that's the part that we also have to change. Run it back. Run it back. Say it again. Run it back. That's the part that we also have to change. All right, then. I'm going to jump on on that because I said that I just got back from, I told you guys in the last episode, I was going to Nigeria and I just got back last week. And that was the same thing that I saw there. Like people don't want to be in any pain. Like I had 90 year old farmers who were complaining about, they call it waist pain, but it's low back pain. And it's like, I had to explain to them that's a part of like, like you're old, okay? You spend your whole life bending over, picking things up. You're going to have pain. And I think it's a human condition. The difference in America is we have the resources to have the opiates and all those things. In Nigeria, they are happy, elated with 325 of Tylenol. They elated with 600 milligrams of Motrin. That's the difference. So I think pain and not wanting to have pain is a human thing, not America versus anywhere else. That's a human thing. People just don't feel like they should have any level of pain. It's the treatment options that are available that make it a little bit dicey. And that's one of the things too. You see, especially we're talking about like orthopedic issues, muscle pain, arthritis. I think that's the thing you're right. Like pain is a human factor. But in how we approach it is different culturally. And I think in America, we just want to be fixed or healed at all times. How many times have you seen doctors, orthopedists do knee replacements for something that shouldn't have been done? So you're basically making the situation worse. You're over-treating people. You're basically causing increased costs for the hospital, for the patients, all for something that's not going to ultimately cure anybody, right? right? And so it comes to the point of, I think, our take, our cultural take on pain. And I think American culture is very different when it comes to pain globally. So you guys drew some parallels. So if we are prescribing medications from a local or global supplier, where people who actually promote these drugs and advertise them to us, we have a very parallel model to what happens with the illegal narcotic industry, correct? So, so just, you know, just as a, just to throw about it, that makes us hustlers, right? That makes the trap house, urgent care, clinics, doctor's offices, ERs, yeah. right? Some people treat us like the trap house. Right. That makes drug reps the generals. <laughs> I'm just saying that that's what 80s cocaine wars were built on, the same thing. Basically, legal and public policy, they were advocated for the sake of a dime that you sell things that aren't in the benefit or to the benefit of a certain population. Now there are you know, class action lawsuits against Big Pharma because we recognize they are not much different than the Sinaloa cartel. They're not much different than the Cali cartel. And we have been really accomplices as far as foreign policy as well as domestic policy and exploiting certain people for the sake of profit. We created this model of supply and demand based on addiction. The problem is, is that the way we doled out the treatment or response to this is unequal. For those who were initially affected by the narcotic marketing and selling wholesale, whether it be brown populations, whether it be black populations, whether it be rural white populations, there was silence for decades. 
when it becomes an issue of certain valued customers now being negatively affected by it, it becomes a national health crisis and no longer a criminal justice issue. So guys, speak on that. I mean, we, that, that, that is amazing. We see the same disease treated in different populations in a, I mean, wildly divergent manner. You send one guy to rehab, you send another guy 10 to 20. Okay. Same disease. I know we're going to get heavy this quickly, but let's get at it. All right. Let me qualify this by saying I absolutely think that the opioid crisis is real and we should be doing everything that we can to end it and to improve everyone's lives. I'm all for Narcan being widely available. For those who don't know what Narcan is, Narcan is the antidote for an opioid overdose, a heroin overdose. So I'm all about it being available. I think whatever we have to do to save lives, I'm all about getting people help with substance abuse. That being said, you hit it on the head. This became a crisis to America when it started affecting middle-class white America. And that's just a fact that we can't avoid. And even people will say, well, back in the day, it was just, it was crack for black folks, black and brown folks. It wasn't just crack. Black people have been doing heroin for a long time and nobody has cared. The only care has been to put the pushers, the hustlers, the drug dealers behind bars behind it. And so now when we have 16 year old um, white kids or upper class white America, middle class white America who are dying from these drugs, this is when now we America cares. And now we have to change the narrative to, to say, OK, it's medicine's fault, it's pharmaceutical's fault, and we have to fix it when the marginalized groups in America have been addicted to drugs for years, for decades, and nothing has been done, and invisible, nothing's been done about it. And not only that, we've been prosecuting and putting people in prison behind it, not just the pushers, but the people that are addicted to it. And then you think about the 80s and the whole crack epidemic, right? And how they just put everybody in prison behind crack. And I don't know how much you guys know about the drug game in general. Black people in these impoverished areas did not make crack cocaine, did not make crack. We did not invent this. This was brought into urban communities. Now, I ask you, how in the world do you think Ray, Lil Ray Ray from Detroit, got into connection with Pablo Escobar in Colombia. How? It's already doc is well documented. See, these aren't conspiracies. It's well documented that the government helped put some of these drugs into these communities. The real Ricky Ross. Exactly. And then you go a step further and from the medicine standpoint, what did they used to say in the eighties and nineties? Crack baby, crack baby, crack baby. And you ask yourself, what's a crack baby? Let me ask you, have you heard of the term heroin baby? Or opioid baby? No, because there was a political agenda. So speaking on, so you're bringing out things that we can readily point to as far as this inconsistency in public policy that has decades, if not who knows longer, ramifications and effects in the form of programs like COINTELPRO, the co-intelligence program of the 1960s where South Central Los Angeles and other places were flooded with drugs, very parallel to communities in West Virginia. Same mechanism, right? 
different groups, same modus operandi. We would see those same things even happen off the shores of the United States where there were certain places that have been flooded with more potent cigarettes. So whenever there's a profit to be made with a perceivable small collateral impact, and what is small is relative. Who do you marginalize? Who do you value? When it's your people that aren't getting hurt in this nefarious way of making money, is moral, it's legal, it's acceptable. When it is someone that you love, live next door to, someone that you look like who's being affected by that, then it becomes a public outcry. It becomes intolerable for this to happen. And we have to be honest. We have to sit at the table and kind of just admit to these things. That's the only way we can move forward. If we don't admit to the inconsistencies, then for all intents and purposes, this is going to be cyclical and we're going to continue to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. I mean, and we see that throughout all types of issues in terms of who we decide to care about, which groups we decide to care about. Just recently, I'm not sure if you guys have heard the information about the stereogenics plants that are that are around the country. I mean, it's been found that basically they've been emitting these toxins that have been linked to causing cancers. All throughout the country, there are these areas where they just are refusing to close down these plants and people are going to court and they're refusing to close down these plants. <laughs> I went to my HOA meeting a couple months ago because I live close to one of these plants. I'm not in the, the red zone or the hot zone, but I'm pretty close to it. I live in a pretty well-to-do neighborhood and there were folks at the HOA meeting that were all up in arms about it and they were saying they're going to meetings, they're going to take this to court. And I told my wife, I said, they're going to close this plant down within a month. I kid you not. She said, no, there's no way because these plants have been open for years. I said, powerful white people in America, when stuff affects them and they want stuff to stop, it stops. And this plant that's been operating for years has just shut down. When I know that if this same plant was in Detroit, or South South Chicago, or in Gary, Indiana, or in Zone 6 in Atlanta, it would still be operating today. Yeah, I want to play a little devil's advocate because everybody here knows the agenda that was being pushed with crack and opiates and how black and brown people were ignored until it became a greater national crisis. And then now we have all these programs in place. But, okay, we understand that. Does someone need to take responsibility of these years of ignorance or are we happy now that you know there's a trickle down effect because now that there's programs in place to look at this and destigmatize drug abuse as more as of a disease as opposed to criminal activity and it is benefiting black and brown people now should we be happy and complacent with that or should we still want some type of acknowledgement that this thing was affecting black and brown people for many years well i mean i still think it's affecting black and brown people disproportionately like i still don't think i still don't think that it's even like I talked to my friends that's working up in the Northeast with a different population and patients coming to the ER addicted to opioids, addicted to meth, and they're getting placed in the rehab facilities. You know, that's not happening in inner cities. Folks that are addicted to these drugs are not getting the rehab that they need because we don't have those resources. And folks are still getting thrown in jail, too. And that's the thing, Timmy, you just noticed this, too. Like, Chitty, we trained in New York, and you see and we had a lot of white patients that come in overdosing. Never had cops get involved. It was just treat them and set them out. But here, it's kind of interesting. You'll see in Atlanta, when sometimes when drugs are used, you'll see cops just hanging around after a patient has used drugs. So, I mean, I think there is definitely, I mean, there's a great book called Stamp from the Beginning. And it kind of just talks, but not just from the healthcare perspective, from the political perspective, too, in terms of how 
being a minority, you were stand from the beginning. You have no opportunity to rise up. And I think that's the thing. It's become like John has mentioned. I think he says it beautifully that when it was crack, it was a criminal offense, right? A criminal issue. But now that opiates are affecting rich white people, it's public health issue. And I think that's what it's who are the customers at the end are the doctors, right? Who are getting, bringing in the money, right? The ones who are admitting, who are prescribing the medications. And who are the ones who are bringing in the money are the rich white folks, right? So that's who's going to be the, that's why there is going to be an outcry. The black population, the brown population that's been affected, they're poor. Who cares about them? Right. So let's spin this again. So, so Chitty, you had a, I think a poignant question that you posed. If we benefit, although late, is it a benefit? There was a scholarly article released, I believe, a year before last. We will upload it for you guys so you can kind of look at how uh, basically inequity and pain prescribing may have been protective of certain populations. So uh, there has been a lag in the effect of prescription-based opioid addiction when you compare black and brown populations to their white counterparts. And there was one gentleman in New York, a researcher, who posed that this was probably because there's been tons of literature that shows that those populations are disproportionately not written for those very addictive high-power opiates. And this may have caused some unintended protective properties where that population is not getting addicted to those meds. At the same time, we now have recent literature just last year showing that it's finally hitting those populations that it's just been a lag. So whereas in the poor black and brown communities, uh, fentanyl and oxycodone weren't the drugs of choice because you weren't going to stand at the crack house called XYZ Hospital and get it. You were to go to the block and pick it up because you got it quickly, you had no questions asked, and you got what you needed. Same diseases, people self-medicating their depression, their brokenness, their hopelessness, but the access is different. So therefore, the medicine is different. There's a saying that says, people choose or make decisions based on those that are made available to them. If it's not available to you, you're not going to go that route. So the opiate crisis in the form of big pharma and the uh, professionally manufactured drugs weren't an option for certain patients. They just weren't getting them. So they were getting them on the street. That in itself is probably a RCA, root cause analysis, that we need to look at how there are inequities and how they play out differently when people present with the same problems. You think substance abuse really has a pretty universal common core. Regardless of race, it's not based on race. It's a uh, really a conditional thing. It is a social condition. It's a psychosocial condition. And people respond in different ways. Some people exercise. Some people eat. Some people become addicted to drugs. But they only choose what is made available to them. And that's why we see this dichotomy on how it manifests and what you use and how it is actually addressed as public policy. And we talked about this previously before. That's a fact of gerrymandering, that's a fact of uh, redlining, it's a fact of so many things. And I, I want to bring that up to the uh, listeners. So when you talk about popping perks and you talk about fentanyl and those things in the club, believe it or not, you've just bought into the same thing that you know, you've know you been oppressed by in the 1960s. You just don't realize it. You just got a different plug now. Right. So we need to make people aware of that. Decriminalization of marijuana really is a similar path to a certain degree. Once people prove that you can make profit off of it, there are no uh, really ramifications that have a public outcry. It becomes a thing. Alcohol prohibition was the same thing. And I think we repeat a lot of these cyclical, uh, for lack of a better word, slippery slopes, because we haven't addressed the root cause analysis that we don't 
see each other as the same. We don't address disease as co-equals. Your drug addiction is because uh, you're black and you're poor. Your drug addiction is because you served in the Gulf War and you've got chronic back pain and you just got laid off at the Ford plant. They're the same things. You know, but it's interesting, like, you know, talking to patients with these chronicity of pain and stuff. I think people come from the perspective of saying, hey, look, like I'm chronically on these medicines. I'm not an addict. I'm dependent on them. I'm not that person that's smoking crack or doing crack. And I think it just comes to perspective, right? But it's just funny. You paint a little brush. Hey, this is legal. We're doing to a doctor's prescription pad. Therefore, what I'm doing is, is appropriate. It's not addiction. But it is. It's the same exact thing, but in, like you're saying, in a different atmosphere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just to talk about it, there are a lot of well-intended prescribers. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of well-intended pushers. Yep. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'm hustling just to get myself out of this situation? You're like, oh, so you're not going out just to kill a bunch of people? No, it's something that we normalize for the sake of X. Almost Machiavellian, the ends no. justify mm-hmm. the means. No different than the people in Congress who are lobbied by Big Pharma who mm-hmm. realize there's some advantage to a constituency by allowing something that probably is not in their community's best interest to pass. They're trying to seek a better life. So that being said and done, it's time for us to lighten this mug up a little bit. <laughs> so while we're talking about uh, this whipping it. <laughs> Same thing. It's the same thing. <laughs> Whipping that stir fry. Yeah. What's up, Breezy? <laughs> it's Virginia 757. You know who it is. Anyway, we laugh at this stuff. We, we make money off of it. We do it all. But it's the same thing, man. It really it's is. It's the same thing. The trap is the same. The trap is global. The hustle is worldwide. And we just got to bring that to people's attention. And hopefully, we can break bread over this in meaningful ways by changing policy. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, speak on it, guys. Talk on I have a question, though. K4 brought up Narcan, and I want to know how people feel about it because I've heard mixed reviews from different physicians. Some people are happy, like, yes, we have this life-saving drug that we can provide to patients that have this disease. Other people are saying, oh, this is just another drug from Big Pharma that's trying to push the agenda. So the more we give people Narcan, the more they're going to use because they know there's a safety net. And then there are other people who would say, just let these people die. Like, why are we giving them these medications that can potentially reverse this death that they come in with? So I feel, and in the beginning, I was kind of like one of those people who were like, just let these people die. Honestly, I was just like, people are coming in, using heroin, coming in pretty much dead, and then we're reviving them and then sending them home with Narcan. So now they feel that they have this safety net so they can keep using. My views have changed of late because I'm starting to see opiate addiction as a disease as opposed to a practice. So would we say to a person who's diabetic, like, just let them die. Don't give them insulin because they are not taking their medication. Do, when they come in with a blood sugar in the 600s, do we just say, you know what, just leave them alone? Because if we give them insulin now, if we fix them now, they're just going to go home and not be compliant with their medications again. I feel that if you are opposed to Narcan, then that's that's the same thing. It's a disease. So I feel like opiate addiction should not be looked at any different than a non-compliant hypertensive or non-compliant diabetic. What do you guys think? I'm with you. And again, being at Stony Brook, you know, when we did residency there, we had a lot of people come with opioid addictions. 
And that was the same thing. We you give them Narcan and you'd be and they'd wake up and they'd be complete jerks, right? And that's why I'll be honest. When I was a resident, I hated. I was passive aggressive with them. I hated them. I was like, why are we even treating these people? But then now being an attending, you're right. Your perspective changes because I initially was conflicted with the idea of Narcan. It's going to keep perpetuating, right? Yeah, they have a safety net. But and I think you're right. Like addiction has a psychological component. It's a psycholo- It could be a psychological disease, right? It could be an organic disease, right? Is it, that's what's causing it. And so for us to keep a blind eye and not do anything about it, I think is, is it's, I think we violate our Hippocratic Oath. And we have to take our part and say, hey, we need to treat these people the same, how we would treat a diabetic, a hypertensive patient, right? I think it would be, it'd be negligence on our part if we didn't become active and and yeah, you know, we're saying we're talking about the big pharma with doctors, us being pushers and making issues and stuff. But now it's our time now to rectify things, right? Be involved now, try to see if we can try to be that person in the bottom of the toting pole and try to make that change, right? But do you feel like this is still pushing big pharma's agenda because they are the ones who are providing the Narcan? And, and, and for us, that's called Stark yeah. Law, right? You can't self-refer. Yeah. You know, you can't be the uh, primary and referral to your own service. There is something about there's a morality or there's an accountability that's lost when you're benefiting from both sides of the game. Right. When you're benefiting, benefiting for the uh, disease and the cure, or at least causing the disease and then, you know, also selling the, the cure. Speak on that, Chris, again, man, what, you were just, what she was just hitting on. Yeah, so I think there's basically been two arguments that I hear against the use of widespread Narcan. One is that why should we waste the resources? These people are self-destructive. They're trying to kill themselves. Why should we jump to the rescue if they can keep doing the same thing? And to that, I just don't think it's very logical. I think that if we are going to, if we think that these people are sick, if we think that they have addiction issues, we have to continue to treat them until they get better, right? And I know a lot of people have never encountered someone who has beat addiction, who has beat depression. When you meet that one person, I do think it changes your outlook forever. You meet that person who was depressed for years and tried to kill themselves. Thank God they got saved. And all of a sudden now they're a different person five years later, thriving in life. That changes your perspective. If you meet that person that was addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol, and five years later, now they are a completely different person. I'm seeing people that are literally completely different people in the ER. And I'm like, wow, you're a completely different person. That changes your perspective that, hey, what we did that day mattered. And so I think it's easy for people to get jaded in the lay population and amongst us in the medical community. But we have to say, hey, these people still need our help. And then at the end of the day, this is a life-saving medication. And our job as humans, as doctors, we need to save lives. And just like you said, there's that double standard to people who have diabetes, high blood pressure. Are you going to withhold that insulin or that blood pressure medication because this person is still going to Popeye's every week to get that Popeye's chicken sandwich or eating Skittles every day? No, we're still going to give them that medicine, right? The second argument, which I think is even sillier is that we are perpetuating. So if we're giving somebody Narcan, we're basically encouraging them to use drugs again. And to me, I make the parallel to, oh, if you give teenagers condoms, you're telling them that they should go have sex. No, kids are already having sex. And so I'm giving them condoms so they so that they can be safe when they're doing it. Because if you don't give them condoms, they're going to have sex. They're not going to be safe. So when we give people Narcan, we're not promoting drug use. We're just saying if you do use the drugs and if you are about to die because of an unintended overdose, now the person around you can save your life and you can live for tomorrow. Okay, so let, let, let me uh, introduce a little, little Erica Badu. Nice. On the side of the game. 
because it's complicated. This is what she was saying. It's complicated. There are no straightforward right, wrong, yes, no, black, white. I did that on purpose in this issue because it's situational. It's contextual. And the important thing for us to realize is that there's some mutual accountability that we have to have in this. That is what is absent. So your addiction to opiate is really your addiction to food, is your addiction to money, is your addiction to power. We have different drugs. Some are more socially acceptable than others. Yep. Some are more addictive than others. Some have different antidotes. We all know the person who had a food problem who thinned out and man, they're living their best life. You know, it's the quote of Atlanta slogan. We all know about the person who, you know, was homeless, didn't, you know, have money coming in and they turned around and they became, you know, a financial advisor, the pursuit of happiness. You know where I'm going with this, but we don't confer any type of uh, hope to people who are chemically addicted, people who are addicted to things that are sometimes uh, uh, makes them a pariah or outcast in our society. Here's the issue though. There is something to be said uh, about accountability. We like to have quick and fast solutions. And to suggest that Narcan is a fast solution is short-sighted, it's myopic. We have to realize it is yet just a bridge or a tool to get them free of whatever may be holding them back or holding them down. I think it should be readily made available, but we should not deceive ourselves in saying that when we mute the consequences of certain behavior, it only leads to self-destruction. So the conversation with people, we give our Narcan is not, hey, you know, go and continue to use and I'm gonna refill all of your pain medications or, you know, go out there, you know, and cop that uh, heroin or whatever. It is, when you have lost this battle, we are giving you a tool so you won't lose the war. Right. But this is only a tool. This is not a cure. This is just, you know, a bridge to get you over the journey must continue on. And that's, I think, the conversation we don't have legitimately as physicians, as people next door. You know, we give up on each other and, or we look for a quick fix and if it's not available, then we give up again. So I, I'm, I'm on the fence with this. There's sometimes I think Narcan should be given, but there are other times that I realize that we have to hit rock bottom. That is the, the process of sobriety. We cannot remove all consequences. And we're gonna throw the picture up. Pain is a good thing. Pain is the warning light in your car that lets you know that, hey man, you keep driving this thing, it's gonna burst into flames. Yeah. At it's, the same time, you know, it's nice to have a spare tire in the back for when I do yeah, off the road. It's nice to have fits and flex, some jumper cables, even though I know I should have been in the shop weeks ago. Yeah, the pain I, I ascribe to, because people come out to the hospital all the time for when they think they're having withdrawal symptoms, they're withdrawing. You know, for the lay community, really the only... The only withdrawal that's dangerous to you is alcohol withdrawal and drugs called benzodiazepine. Benzodiazepine. But if you are withdrawing from opioids, that's not dangerous to your to your health. It's un, it's uncomfortable. It's painful, um, but it's not going to kill you. And so when people come in and they're having withdrawal from opioids, I say, hey, you have to live through this. You have to experience this pain because I don't want you to. I want you to remember this so you can get clean. Um, and so I think that's something that we can incorporate while still saving their life with the Narcan if, if necessary. And I love that. You said we're drawing. I knew it was coming up, so I just threw a little Travis Scott up there. He's already in place because that is the main symptom along with vomiting, diarrhea, just for the educational purposes, uh, rhinorrhea, goosebumps. It makes your flesh kind of stick up when you're yeah. drawing for opiates. And, and 
Granted, that feels horrible, but that is one of those consequences that should wire your brain. I said, man, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. I don't like this anymore. And the good thing is that naloxone actually causes this type of yeah. acute withdrawal. It's a horrible yeah. feeling. We have to then discouple or decouple the withdrawal from the desire to go back and use again. We're saying that. Then how do we feel about Suboxone? Because we were all trained in my emergency room. We're all trained and we can all prescribe Suboxone. So if someone comes in in acute withdrawal, Literally, we figure out how severe their withdrawal is and we give them Suboxone. So they don't have to go through any of that discomfort. There are a lot of people who are saying that placing people on Suboxone is basically just taking one opiate and and giving them another opiate just at a lesser form. How do we feel about that? Again, Big Pharma is still at the helm of all of this because they're the ones who are producing Suboxone. So the champions for Suboxone say that you get less of a high, but they'll be more inclined to use a Suboxone as opposed to the illegal drug. And so the criminal part of it will be alleviated. There's a lot of discussions and rationales as to why Suboxone is good, but I want to know how you guys feel because I prescribe it all the time to alleviate the symptoms and to help with the craving to go back. But if we're saying now that we want them to feel a little bit of this pain so that they can remind themselves that, hey, it can get bad, why are we doing Suboxone then? Yeah, so what I'm supposed to say and what's politically correct to say is that Suboxone is a good thing and I have no problem prescribing it. It's expanded our roles in the ER in terms of prescribing it and it's the humane thing to do to help folks feel better through this crisis. And I get all those points and I don't, I don't have any hard pushback against us providing this medication the flip side of that is, and John Noji kind of brought this up, it's kind of he made the parallel to methadone. Growing up, I knew a lot of folks, like I mentioned earlier, opioid is not a new thing. Um, heroin has been around a long time. Heroin. And I knew a lot of folks who were addicted to heroin. And I was around folks who were in methadone clinics and I actually worked in the methadone clinic or volunteered in the methadone clinic for a while. And the problem is, is that we think, can we like to tell ourselves that patients are getting this and this is the substitute? So not only are we replacing one drug for another drug and we can say, OK, this is a little bit better drug to be on than the street heroin or fentanyl or whatever. But in reality, and from what I saw and what I continue to see is that folks are coming in to get their methadone and get in their suboxone and they are still getting the heroin. And they're still getting the Oxycontin. It's not, to me, it is not preventing people from getting the street drugs. That's the conversation that we want to bring to this table. It's not being had. It is the, uh, what I like to call root medicine for all of my people from the Caribbean. Root cause analysis. Yeah. Nature abhors a vacuum. That's why addiction is possible. That's why we substitute addiction with addiction. Mm-hmm. That once you are hardwired to do something, and you stop it, it's abrupt cessation or gradually, you need to fill that or rewire that neural network to do something else in this replacement. Now, here's the thing. We often like quick fixes. You know, we like the path of least resistance. That's the mm-hmm. way nature flows also. We're going to talk about, you know, just energy and thermodynamics. It's a tendency for people to do what's convenient and easy versus what is lasting and most beneficial because that normally requires a greater input of work and time. When you talk about when people are in uh, these uh, substitution clinics, 
I think it is beautiful that you have something that is less destructive to bridge you. But how many of us are coupling that with what got you here? Yeah. Yeah. What has changed in your life that now doesn't necessitate that you self-medicate in any form? Mm-hmm. What are you able to do? So when your your environment is still dire, okay, they're still self-medicated just with a different degree. We really don't see psychiatric counseling tied no. to methadone clinics, right? Nope. It's like bariatric surgery. For all the purposes, people go to get the surgery, get the stomach done 15 different ways, and they never stop with the food addiction. Yeah. Right. So we have to really be honest in healthcare and in the general populace about yeah. the long journey of addiction and what it means. Every one of us at this table, I'm going to say this, i get real transparent really quickly. Every one of us at this table has a habit in our lives that does not benefit us. Some of us have recovered from it. Some of it is socially acceptable, be it alcohol, be it, I'm going to call it out, pornography, be it money, be it strip clubs, gambling. Gambling. We all have, because that is the nature of man. We love feeling good. And whatever we can find, now there are all of us at this table too who have substituted bad behavior because we had an outcome, a sensible event, if you will, that made us kind of want to rewire and change the behavior to avert danger. Self-corrective behavior is what it's called in mm-hmm. psychiatry. We need to have those long individual conversations and not just have a simple rubber stamp public policy. This is what we're going to do. It is not a quick fix. It is a lifelong commitment to these things. And there must be transparency and vulnerability amongst us to sit at the table and break bread and say, hey, man, I've struggled with that. This is what got me through. Or I still have times I have a, what we call in the addiction community, a slip, a short lapse in progress. That's okay. But we don't do that. We write a script, we make you stand in line, we get a new drug, and, and, and the cycle repeats itself. Well, I mean, we love the quick fix, right? That's why all these, that's why people are getting rich on all these fad diets and weight loss stuff because we wanna we wanna lose weight in a month, in two months, get that summer beast body in two months when it's a lifestyle change, right? And I think that's your absolutely right. Like we want a quick fix, right? It's a cultural thing. And and so from somebody who was a psych major in undergrad who actually went to med school to do psychiatry. You stuck on me now. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like you never. You didn't have to do that. Yeah, yeah. But like, no, I'm just saying. It's just like you know, brown people. We don't go into psychiatry, you know. So that's why we ended up going into that, you know. So mm, no, I'm kidding. Mm. I'm kidding. My fellow brown psychiatrist. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but the thing said, I mean, that's the thing. We want quick fixes, right? I mean, it's the same thing with any kind of illness, right? In my culture, again, we're very sedentary, so we tend to get heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure but what's our attitude hey man they're going to put me on some blood pressure medicine and that's it but you're not going to the simple thing with hey maybe having a good lifestyle right eating properly exercising i think we talked about this last time and i'll talk about it again i love talking about this where i was overweight in undergrad right i was 205 pounds is my heaviest and you have a moment in your life where like hey i need to change things and for me it was when my dad got bypass surgery right i was like i need to change my life around right sentinel event, sentinel event. and that's what it was it was like something I have to do and i was able to thank god for the past 10 years now i've been able to stay around 165 right Right. So and it still work out. Right. Worked out this morning before this podcast. I did. That's why we made sure it was at 10 o'clock and at nine. Right? And so I could get the get a workout in there. I know he made all of us feel bad. I was in bed eating Pringles. <laughs> Have our vices, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for you, Chitty. And, uh, but, um, but I mean, that's the thing. Like, we're not in the same thing with, with addiction. It's the same thing. And I remember, like, I still remember this one patient that was at Stony Brook. And I think it's maybe it's kind of messed up because you see yourself on that person. It was, it was actually a Pakistani patient that came in for a heroin overdose. 
And I was talking to her, and at the end, usually with patients who come with heroin overdose, you get passive aggressive, like, hey, what are you in for? You did this again, okay, whatever. We're gonna make sure you're okay and go home. But I actually sat down and had a discussion with her, like, hey, like, what happened? Like, what actually made this happen to you? And she actually started crying and opened up, like, the stress at home, of course, right? Because every brown person needs to be a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, a lot of stress. She wasn't doing well in school, got in touch with the wrong friends, and got and was exposed to heroin, right? And so you're right, we have to get to the thing, like, what caused you to get to this point? And I think that's what we don't focus on. Same thing with, I know this is, again, controversial. I'm going to have people attack me, but about guns, right? It's like we talk about it's a mental illness issue and things like that. But what is being done about it? What are we doing to make this, hey, we need to give these resources to patients who have these issues? There is no resource. And we have to get, and at the end, all comes to psychology at the end. In time and relationship, there is a uh, saying that uh, housing is health, food is your medicine. I would say community is just as much therapeutic and cost. 100%. 100%. And in a society where we really treasure people's individuality, what gets lost with the lack of community and individuality is accountability. So it's hard to hold yourself accountable. But in a group of people, you can hold each other accountable. Yeah. That's what we don't do. It's always them, they, you, instead of me, we, us. We got to kind of reframe the narrative. Yeah. And I think everybody has something to benefit from that. If you look at the way the country's divided right now, you yeah. know, I'm going to talk politics, yeah, politics, religion, I'm going to talk all the controversial yeah. stuff because it speaks to a greater disease. Yeah. Donald Trump is the symptom of a disease. He's not the disease himself. So we need to look at how we actually divide ourselves along these artificial lines instead of coming together and say, hey, look, man, I got the same problem as you. Yeah. What has worked for you? I'll tell you what's worked for me. And then we can come to a common goal. That is, you know, the whole saying, I think I said it before, the uh, tide raises all ships in the harbor. There's a universal uh, benefit when we come together and do something for a common purpose. And that's when we've gotten good at it. That's when we came together for common issues, be it slavery and abolition. And we shed blood over that issue. There's a common benefit in that. That's how we became the United States, one yeah. of the greatest nations in the world. That being said and done, I, just to switch it up a little bit, you know, because uh, we, we've been talking a little heavy, got really deep all of a sudden. I'm going to throw some trap music up in here. You probably remember this. Just because I can. <laughs> Why not? This is my drug. Yeah. One of them. <laughs> all right. Got a little candy going on there this time. Yep. Yep. Form. What are some real solutions? And we may not have them at this table. This is not the beginning, I mean, the ending of this conversation. This is just the beginning. You know, this is the appetizer. I mean, I, I think, again, this may be simple, but I think it's going to end up being mental health resources. I think being better at that, right? And I think, especially with addiction issues, 
you got to see what the root cause is. Like we were talking about that. What the actual issue is to address that, right? All these like taking pain medications for pain, all this stuff. These are all temporary fixes, right? They're not a long-term thing. We have to be able to discuss with patients being like, hey, what is it that led you to this point? Attack that. I think that's one of the reasons why I chose emergency medicine at the end because we actually see quick fixes and we see that we can turn a patient around. I think one of the hardest specialties you can go to is neurology or psychiatry when it deals with the brain. It's kind of hard to see if there's any changes going on. But I think that's what we have to be able to delve into that, not shy away from that, but to go full head on, address the mental health perspective of this. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it is just changing our mindsets as practitioners to seeing this as a real disease. And the same way, like we all said it, when a person comes in with blood pressure in 200s, like you sit down and you're talking to them like, you need to do this, you need to start exercising, you need to stop taking so much salt, you need to cut out the fast food. I'm guilty too. When someone comes in with an opiate addiction, I give them a Narcan and I kick them out the door. Like a lot of times I don't sit down and say, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? I don't want to see you back here the same way that I would do with someone who's coming in with a quote unquote real disease. So I think changing our mindsets uh, about what opiate addiction is and seeing it as a disease and then really realizing our own biases when people come in with opiate addiction, you know, and a lot of us, we see black and brown people coming in with opiate addiction and you look at them differently than a 75 year old white grandma that comes in asking for Percocets. And that's even as a black female. Those studies that show uh, basically the disparities and inequities in uh, prescribing practices, you can normalize for the prescribers and you'll find out regardless of their race or their uh, gender, we all have those biases. And it's yeah. kind of funny, you know, you can look at somebody that looks just like yeah. you but they're of a certain population and treat them as if they were an other. That's the amazing thing about this. You know, uh, these things are learned behaviors, even if only subconsciously. I've talked to residents about it too, and they're like, hey, I'm not racist. I was like, we're not saying you're racist, but it's something that's- the- You are, but anyway- No, fair. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, fair. <laughs> it's in our subconscious, I think, it's again, based on the system, right? The system is developed in a way it's rigged against minorities, right? And so I think that's what's happening. We're kind of been institutionalized this when it comes to medicine, law, whatever it is. It's all been doing things towards advancing rich white people, right? I mean, what the biggest example I give is, is I guess, when it came to open carry laws in California, right? Like with Reagan, when the Black Panther Party was walking around protecting black people, all of a sudden now weapons aren't used anymore because... Yeah, so at the state house yeah. with open carry, you know, yeah. AKs and the like, and swift legislature yeah. came to outlaw that. Yeah. Actually, the author of that legislation in California was then elected to... Congress as a national representative, and he basically wrote the same laws that we see now that a lot of people open carry in many places nationally. This law doesn't apply to you. Now we're talking about root cause analysis. Yeah. We're yeah. talking about policies that perpetuate drug addiction. Yeah. Whether it be the trap house that you call XYZ General Hospital, yeah. whether it be the pink one that uh, Two Chains yeah. actually uh, opens up for Halloween every year, yeah. whether it be, you know, the Popeye's fried chicken, whether it be the, uh, you know, the, the, the convenience store that sells the liquor and the cigarettes yeah. on your block. That That is, we have to say that this right to live healthy has to be universal. Yeah. And there has to be not only an educational component of it, which you just both mentioned, but there has to be a demand by the public that we will no longer tolerate this yeah. anymore. I realize that you're not giving me the fair shake. Yeah. And it must be those who of us who are now 
at least willing to acknowledge that I haven't given you a fair shake. I have seen you differently than your yeah. your fellow man, and I'm part of the problem too. Those are really obtainable solutions. They're they're long. They're not quick. And in, in, in terms of health too, right? I mean, we talk about the social aspect of implications and effects on health, right? Look at if you look at more urban settings, more areas with high black population, more inner city areas. The amount of fast food is everywhere. Every block you go to some fast food place. But Chris was talking about this, how how where you grew up became so big when Starbucks came in, right? When expensive oh, yeah. coffee, Shake Shack. Here I'm at Buckhead. I have Shake Shack like five minutes away from me. But you won't see that in the inner cities. You'll see McDonald's, Popeye's, things like that. And it's liquor happening. stores every corner. Liquor store every corner, right? And that's why people can be exposed to that. And that's why they're not going to get healthy, right? But you go into richer areas, richer white areas, and you notice much higher quality foods. And so health expectancies be better in these areas compared to these inner cities. And I hate to be the skeptic in the group and sprinkle some pessimism in there, but honestly, I don't, I don't know if there's a practical solution because, you know, you look at it and you say, you know, what's the most important concept in this country? People say democracy. It's not democracy. It's capitalism. It's capitalism. This is a capitalist society. And what that means is the almighty dollar, you know, is king. And there's no money in getting folks cognitive therapy or getting folks help to get them off of that drug. There's no money in lifestyle changes so that you're not you're not needing to be on medication from an individual and personal standpoint. You know, we get offended when we see our lay friends post social media post about, oh, nobody's looking for cure because there's no money in the cure because we know individuals who are researching cures. But at the end of the day, like we're just the boots on the ground. We're not the ones in control. We're not the ones with the power and the money. So, yeah, there may be some individuals who are trying their best to get cures. But at the end of the day, we don't control when that cure comes out because we're going to follow the money. Right. And it gets back to the trap. The game is going to be the game. The game is not going anywhere. And if you try to mess up that man's money, you're going to get taken out. And that's America. That's how America runs. And drug dealers throughout history They've simply patterned themselves after the biggest gangs in America, and that's the government. It comes to policy, right? I mean, this is the thing you see, not just narcotics, but different medications as that pharma has been pushing, the FDA has even approved, but they fast track these medications, devices, because again, it's the dollar, right? All held the dollar, right? And so I agree with you. I mean, I think we're being very, a simplistic view of like, hey, mental health, these kind of resources. But I think ultimately yeah. what's going to come to is putting the right people in office, right? And maybe it's not going to happen, right? It's for us to get involved in the grassroots and try to change policy. But I don't know how realistic that's going to be or practical. Look at how we're paid. What gives you the most money in your pay structure? Procedures, right? The specialties that do the most procedures on people get paid the most. And then the doctors that are trained to practice preventative medicine and to get people to do lifestyle changes, the generalists, they get paid the least because there's no money in what they're doing. You know, and it's interesting. There's a great book that I've been reading right now that we'll definitely put this on. It's called Overtreated by Shannon Brownlee. And she talks about that, right? When Medicare kind of came about, we became very procedure, specialist heavy, right? And so we start pouring towards specialists and that's where most of the money is going. But if you look at studies, there's a lot more harm where specialists are being involved, right? Because specialists are focusing on one thing. And one of my buddies, an orthopedist, always jokes around, like, the heart, the purpose is to pump blood to the bone and muscle, right? It's like, nah, like, there's a lot more things that the, the heart does. And that's how specialists are. You keep sending to more and more specialists, they're only focusing on these more testing, more costs, right? And that's more money for the doctor in the end, right? But when it comes to generals, you see if a generalist gets involved, patient's care is much better, but it's also less costly, right? And that's the thing where I always say, like, say, 
we see all these big famous doctors in, uh, in, in media and stuff, but they're all specialists at the end, right? And I think coming from an ER perspective, because we see the flaws in medicine, right? We see it firsthand. And I think for us to get involved and start this conversation in the emergency room, I think helps because for us, what little steps we may not, this is a bigger problem than us, right? But if we get involved in discussing things with patients, at least maybe these small little changes can can make big changes right. and rifts in the world, you know? So, right. so, so you guys you guys really hit on some really proper things. So first and foremost, the most addictive drug in America is money. Money, right. yep. Money, money, money. Cash money. That's yeah. the addiction we can't break through. You know, it, it is uh, funny because you realize, like any other drug, it has a very perverse, unattended sound effects, right? Yeah. The more money you make, the more you want. That's the weird thing yeah. about it. It's like a drug. Man, I balled out this month. I'm going to do that again. Let me see if I can top that. And healthcare is built on that same model. So when you look at why we have set healthcare on this treat first kind of paradigm versus prevent, it's because money is the driver. It's not population health. It's not actually truly health. That's a misnomer. Countries that spend less money actually have better health outcomes, measurable health outcomes. That's crazy. So you got developing yeah. countries that have longer life expectancies by doing some really inexpensive, not profitable things. So what we have to do is actually uh, tie, for lack of a better word, capitalism to social causes. It's yeah. called social capitalism. Yeah. I don't think we'll ever break that addiction in America, mm. but we must be willing to substitute, same thing, yeah. one addiction for the next. So yeah. we can substitute some of the profit being made with altruism. You're not always going to get paid in the top dollar. The idea that your profit margins will increase infinitum goes against the laws of thermodynamics. It yeah. really does. That's why markets inflate and deflate and why they crash. But if we're able to tie that some of your compensation or remuneration will come in the form of people feeling better, you feeling good about what you did. We won't change the game totally, but we yeah. will change it enough that we'll get more wins than we have to. It's relative. Mm-hmm. And I realize that you, you hit it right, Chris. This is a... Uh, it's very idealistic, but so was a person of African descent ascending to the highest office in the land. Sometimes it's incremental changes, small grassroots efforts that get the attention from people from below and above. And as you form stalactites and stalagmites, when they come together, they form a column, which is the strongest support when you're talking about the geology of change. And there's a transformation that I think we're trying to create here. Who knows? We may be idealistic. One of you guys make a shot on the balcony today. I'm not calling it out, but that is what happens. And we have to realize that's what's at stake when you talk about money and changing, you know, the world through small, you know, small movements. Grassroots. Can we just end by just saying what our favorite patient complaint when it comes to pain is? Mine is, oh, uh, I would like to get the uh, medication that starts with the uh, D. Patients, whoever's listening to this, if you're a patient, just don't say that. Don't say that because we're just not going to, it's not going to bode well for you. One of the docs is like, discharge, you know? And so uh, <laughs> it's like, she just started using that too. John and Chris are going to know there's a guy here that comes in. He's an alcoholic that comes in, complaining of pain in his left lower quadrant all the time. Comes in all the time. So everybody just like basically brushes him off and he gets upset and just ends up eloping. And so I finally like, you know what? It was a slow day. It's like, I'm going to have a conversation with this guy. I'm like, what happened, man? Like, what's going on, buddy? Let's let's call him John, right? They're like, John, what's going on, man? What happened? Why, why are you doing this? You know, no doctor's going to give you medicines here, but why are you here? He's like, look, I need morphine. Morphine helps me out, whatever. But he's like, look, he's like, I was like, you did a great job. Two months you haven't been here. You got your life together. He's like, man, I used to be employee of the month at Sprint and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, man, you can go back and do this kind of stuff. 
and had this song just gonna say, hey, look, ultimate treatment is you stop drinking, right? That's gonna be the thing that's gonna help you out the most is to stop drinking, right? But it's like, give you some other stuff. He's like, no, doc, I need morphine. But I was like, you know what? I'm gonna give you Ketorolac. And he's like, hmm, what is that? I was like, yeah, it's, it's a pain medicine that works really, really well, right? And so in the ear, it's Toradol, right? That's the term we use all the time. But that's what we use the fancy domain. He was all up for it. Got this Ketorolac and he felt amazing. It's like, it's like, wow. And that's just an IV version of it. came back the next came day. Back. He's like, hey, man, I need that uh, pain medicine, Ketorolac. Yeah, yeah, ketamine, yeah. Don't come into the ER and be like, I need the duh, duh, duh. Or tell us that your pain score is a 15 out of 10. Don't do it. But I have a high pain tolerance. Don't do it. That's what makes me laugh the most is like, I have such a high tolerance of pain, but it's at 20 right now. No, no, a high pain tolerance is if I cut your leg off, you yeah. flinch. You yeah, know, that's high yeah that, that's high pain tolerance, yeah. It's funny that you, you brought up one of those uh, those stories that, oh man, I can't stand that anymore. I, I guess I'm now 20 years out of med school, which is almost ungodly now that I think about it. Those stories have changed now because I think I now recognize myself with those same people. I just recognize that I shop at a different trap house. And what used to bother me now is a conversation starter. It's an icebreaker. People are like, I need this. And so I tell them, they come in, I'm like, what are, you, what are you medicating? What are you treating? What's going on? And people, when given the opportunity, would just like pour out yeah. some really, really just this, you know, deep stuff that I like to be able to delude myself that we both walk away a little bit better yeah. discussing. There are things that I, they, they tell me that encourages me. And gives me hope. And there's stuff that hopefully I can do the same for them. But I, I realized, man, back in the days, I'm like, oh, man, dude, that's for Percocet for poison ivy. I'm like, get out of here, man. <laughs> Percocet for poison ivy? Yeah. I mean, he was like 20-something you know, years of age. I'm like, that was livid. That doesn't get me anymore. I was like, okay, well, it's a little deep, brother, but I think you want it for something else. Let's talk about it. Let's yeah. talk about it. We're trying to get to your level then. Yeah, man. No, man, don't yeah. do that. Be, be better than me. I tell y'all, don't be. Because I'm still mad. Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean, the reality is, try to be saints and angels and everything, but reality is a lot of those times, that person is trying to get as much out of you so they can go ahead and flip that Percocet, right, and sell that Percocet. But at the end of the day, what, are that, what is that person being? A capitalist. So that's just, he's just getting to where he lives. Well, guys, it has been a blast as usual. We are going to... Uh, Hit you up on uh, social media feeds that we have, the websites with uh, basically some of these action items. Basically, some things we could talk about as far as prevention, solutions, policy, advocacy, education, accountability. A lot of the things that we hit today will hit you with uh, many of the resources, links that uh, we referenced today. And hopefully we'll keep this conversation going because this is by no means a one-off. This is an ongoing conversation. Send us. And we will have a link. Any of your questions or comments, mm -hmm. gripes, we probably won't read the gripes, but anyway, just send them. <laughs> <laughs> and we look forward to breaking bread with you guys yeah. again. Absolutely. And like you always say to any topics you guys would love for us to cover, please let us know. Anybody have any final words before we close this thing down? Anybody? NBA is back. I'm happy. <laughs> I know. I'm sad. NBA is back. Speaking of addiction, I gambled again last some night, money. but I won some money <laughs> thanks to uh, the NBA, back. so welcome back. <laughs> last song featuring a song by uh, Wild Cookie. It's called Serious Drug. Take a listen as we fade to black and white.
Cigarette spoke to me.